You're listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense with your host, Doug Thorpe. Here's Doug. Well, hello again, everyone. This is Doug Thorpe, and you're listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense. Today, my guest is going to help us on a bit of a journey. And, I, and I've got a feeling this is going to ramble a little bit. Um, uh, my, my guest, his name is Ryan Hemingway. Ryan, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Thanks, Doug. So let me, I don't want to be mysterious, let me explain to folks what I meant by possibly rambling, and, and it'll all be on me if this turns into a rambling train wreck, it'll all be my fault, but um, Ryan's got a, an amazing background, and I was telling him in, while we were in the green room that there's some things that we haven't talked about on this show yet that I would like to get his insights in, because he is currently involved in what most of us entrepreneurs know as venture capital and private equity funding. So what I was telling Ryan, I think my exact words were for most entrepreneurs, that's a mystery. You know, how do you attract private equity or venture capital? And unless you happen to know somebody that might be a broker or banker in that realm, um, it's, it's just a mystery. So, before we get into all that, Ryan, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about your background, your journey to do what it is you're doing now? Absolutely. No, thank you. Well, I'll try to keep it short, um, but but sweet still. So I actually studied psychology as an undergrad and was a pilot. So I was a flight instructor. I was planning on being a commercial pilot. I, towards the end of that, realized I needed a little more chaos in my life, and I went back and did a master's degree in economics and, and became a bond trader back in New York. So I went from no chaos to a lot of chaos. <laughs> um, after that, a couple years, four years or so of that, I went, I moved to England where I did an MBA at Oxford, and then I graduated in 07 when the world fell apart. And I ended up joining uh, Nevada State Bank, which is a $4 billion regional bank in Nevada. I had met with their CEO and uh, I was the first hire to come and build a private banking division within the bank. So it was um, at the time, I, I will tell you, Doug, I thought, I thought, wow, this is like being an entrepreneur, but within an organization and I've got resources and, and everything and support. And it was not like that. I mean, it was, as you know, during that time period, 07 to 10 was just financially, everything was on fire. There was a destruction of wealth. So um, I think the, the blank canvas that I thought I had was a little bit less of a blank canvas, although we still got things up and going and, and, and everything was, we, we did really well. We got the private bank up and going and it was working. Anyway, from there, I joined Epic Ventures, where I am today, as you mentioned. Epic Ventures is an early stage venture fund. We invest in software companies from pre-revenue up to, you know, two or three million in revenue and then kind of help them facilitate growth and, and so forth. And I've been there now about 12 years you are right. The 2007 time frame was kind of a, a seemed like a world coming to an end. In fact, uh, Kramer on TV actually called it Armageddon uh, in the markets. And uh, I likewise, being an old banker, I had a bit of a front row seat, as most of my listeners have heard me talk about before. I 
had to actually close a company because of that crash, uh, because my company was related to the mortgage business. And that was, that was kind of ground zero for a lot of activity. But to your point about your bank, the aftermath of all that, there was a, a tremendous amount of government oversight and overreach, perhaps you could say, in terms of changing banking laws and rules. The infamous Dodd-Frank Act was passed, and uh, there was a mindset that the banks were the bad guys, and they needed to be reined in and regulated and deeper and heavier than they already were. And so uh, it was... Uh, it was quite a transition going through that. And I, and I imagine somewhere in the mix of what you were dealing with, there was a flavor of, we got new guidance. We thought we could do X and now we can't do X. And so we have to go do something else. And so uh, I'm sure there was a lot of that mixed in there. Oh, abs it was, it was, uh, it, it was crazy times for sure. I mean, there was, just as you said, there was a lot of rethinking strategy and where we should be focused. And, you know, is there, you know, should we get into, you know, some different types of asset classes? I mean, all those discussions. Um, and there was a lot of sadness too. In fact, we, I mean, we took over, so we worked with the FDIC to basically take over two failed banks. Um, and then we helped them facilitate a third um, after that. And that's a, uh, I mean, that's a tough process in, its, in and of itself. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I know that all too well. In my consulting days, I was one of those uh, FDIC receiver asset managers and working with banks like yours to acquire portfolios. And so I was on the other side of that table at that time. But um, well, enough of the, the past like that. Talk a little bit about your current uh, fund activities and what, what sort of target markets are you into? Yeah. So we, we just closed. So we have been around, I told you I've been here for about 12 years, but Epic has been around since the early nineties. So we just did a final close on our fund six. So it's $160 million. Um, and we target that early stage. So it's all, most of it is enterprise software. So businesses selling software to other businesses. Um, that, that's the main focus kind of in that early stage. And then there's, there's six of us. And then each of us has areas of focus. We work pretty collaboratively, but everyone has an area of focus. So for example, I spend a lot of time, as you can tell, with my background in fintech, kind of financial technology, uh, data and analytics, uh, I'm heavy in there. Um, and sales and marketing tech, but I've got I've got partners that specialize in healthcare, IT, uh, cybersecurity, and so forth. So, you know, I think a lot of the mainstream headline news when it comes to private equity and venture capital is often related to technology. At least it has been in in my mind for the last I don't know maybe twenty years or longer. You know the infamous rise of Silicon Valley as as a, a hub and and center for massive opportunity and growth and everything. And um, I I think that landscape is changing a little bit. What what do you see as some of the changes coming your way? Well, I think I think some of the well some of the biggest changes that have happened over time is. Um, there is a lot of growth outside of Silicon Valley. I think we've seen that as technologies improve, certainly with COVID and the acceleration of kind of remote 
um, you know, kind of remote employee inter- interaction. So I think I'm seeing a lot more teams than I did five years ago that are distributed. I mean, there was always distributed teams, but we're seeing a lot of that. I think uh, there's more opportunities for entrepreneurs to engage with with capital providers. There's there's a number of platforms, and I mean, we talked a little bit about this earlier. So I'm not. I hope I'm not jumping the gun on you, but. Um, for entrepreneurs, there's a number of platforms that they can go out and try to get in front of angel investors and VC investors. There's a lot more. Um, there's been this growth and rise of, of accelerators, incubators, I mean, in every state. So I think, I think there has been a change in the way to get capital, but also I think there is a, a huge interest from from younger, and when I say younger, I'll mean those in kind of university level that are coming up. There's a really big interest in entrepreneurship. In fact, I work with uh, Utah State and their entrepreneurial program. I know the U's got a big entrepreneurial center. You know, BYU's got big programs, and that's just the three big ones here in Utah. <clears throat> so I think the the universities have a big focus. The students have a big focus. So. Again, I think we'll continue to see a wave of of new companies for sure. I would agree with you. I think all the mainstream and larger universities have have taken a dive and made a commitment to creating their own entrepreneur centers. Um, I know here in Houston, the University of Houston has done a big one that I've actually you know helped and do some work with. Uh, my alma mater, Texas A&M, has, has had one for quite some time, uh, uh, that being an entrepreneur's center. The curriculum in the business school has changed to allow for study of what it means to be an entrepreneur and a, perhaps even a solopreneur. So the, the horizon has, has gotten wider for young the, the the newer generations coming into the adult business world so to speak and and having entrepreneur as a as a choice right out of the gate oh absolutely uh, i think it is a choice out of the gate and again i i think back and i'm a little older um for your listeners but i i think back to some entrepreneurial classes i had and they are they're not what the classes are today by any means. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> we talked, we didn't talk about this. You know, we just didn't talk about it the same way. And I think, I think with the, you know, with the increase where, where technology has improved to a level, and I think you would agree here, Doug, but, but correct me with what, if I'm wrong, technology has enabled so many people to spin up businesses that were once really hard to do. Um, I mean, with, I mean, just think of the e-com, just think of an e-commerce business, right? If we go back to when I graduated, if you wanted to get product, I mean, you would have had to, you know, fly to China and figure out, find a manufacturer and cut deals with them and figure out how to get it shipped. And, you know, there's a whole, there's a whole chain of events. You would have had to do a lot of legwork. I mean, now, uh, you know, now a student at university can, can piece together most of that sitting behind his laptop. Right. No, you're right. It used to, if you wanted to be a retailer of some sort, you had to find a supplier. You had to pay the wholesale price and, and build an inventory and then stockpile it and do your own fulfillment, getting it back out the door when you got a sales order. 
but now people are doing trading and I'm thinking of the website Alibaba, you know, that you can find those manufacturers all over the globe, uh, cut a deal with them and, and basically they'll drop ship to your, you know, end buyer. So you're never touching the product. You're never seeing it. You're just, uh, being the storefront online for advertising it. And, you know, I know Amazon has really made a big play in that, that, you know, Amazon is not the provider of the goods that they're advertising. (laughs) (laughs) So, so I do, again, which is exciting in a way that, that this is now enabled, you know, millions of people to really engage in entrepreneurship and, and uh, continue to build their organization but also, you know, lead those organizations. Yeah. Well, and on that point, you know, I'm amazed at the rapid velocity that these things are evolving because now even like the the dropshipper type solutions we're talking about here, there's a whole market now, I'm told, for consolidation of those. So... If you went out and started up a website to sell sporting goods and you you lined up all your providers uh, and you had that up and running, somewhere there would be a buyer that would want to come buy your store and aggregate it and do a roll-up on it at some point in time if you've got enough volume. So, so there's a whole market of businesses being resold to larger conglomerates and you know, if you're the entrepreneur, you just go out and do it again. <laughs> pick another, pick another niche. You know, and, and do the same model all over again. Absolutely, no, absolutely. And it's so it's fun working with. So, at the university, I'm on their entrepreneurial founders board at Utah State, and we, you know, work with a lot of students as a mentor, as a, you know, to help them facilitate those that want to start businesses. And you know, this is the type of thing that we talk about, right? How where you can go to get some of this and what steps you need to take to, you know, to really get this off the ground. And we've seen one or two, again, not billion dollar exits by any means, but there's a number that have come out of there that have a well-run business when they graduate, right? They have a well-run lifestyle business that's supporting themselves and a team of, you know, some number. Um, And that's really exciting to watch. It's inspiring to see. Do you have any sense of among that student group that you've got exposure to, how many of them are focused on the notion of building the next Google or the next Microsoft, you know, from actually building pure technology versus some other form of of business enterprise? I get it's a great question. And I and I would caveat that with just saying so. In my experience, it depends on the school, what, what you have. So, for example, um, I would say Utah State um, ha- has a pretty wide variety of what we come through, what we see come through there. I've seen everything from, you know, one of their big ones that's doing really well is selling swimsuits, kind of a fashion swimsuits. Uh, seen cookies, uh, some cookie ones that have done really well after graduation and all the way to, I'll kid you not, um, they're in agriculture school too. And one of the first judging panels I was on, Doug, you'll find this funny, uh, a young man came in and was selling bowl semen. And um, 
I will tell you, as he left, all of the judges, we looked at each other and we kind of thought, I, I have no idea. I, I don't know anything about selling bull semen. <laughs> but he's gone on to build a, a, a real bit. I mean, he's gone on to build a business around it and supports himself. Um, so now if, if you go to the University of Utah, which I also work with, um, they've got, they're a big medical school, if, if you don't know, and they've got a lot of medical device stuff that's coming out of there. There's a lot of stuff around that. And so, um, so I think they all have visions of, of being a billion dollar Google type company, but I think their focuses uh, tend to be pretty wide and broad from, yeah. from technology and software all the way, like I said, from, from medical device all the way to selling bull semen or, um, Another one up at Utah was renting uh, butterflies, basically renting butterflies for events and parties and selling butterflies. So, so <laughs> a wide range, which was really cool. I mean, they did a really good presentation. They had a you know one of those nets up on stage and went in and saw the butterflies. It was really they did a really good job presenting. That's so. amazing. Yeah. Well, you're right. I, I think the, um, the school itself might be the driver in determining the direction that some of the students are, are thinking. Uh, I know down here in the Houston area where I am, because of the preponderance of oil and gas activity down here, petrochemical and all of that, when you go to the entrepreneurial judging contests, there's a lot of oil field service related solutions that are being pitched there uh, anything from software all the way through devices and monitoring systems and things such as that so yeah that i, I think that's a that's a good call out that it, it could be a function of what the general climate and culture at the school is that, that sort of drives and dictates those inspirations. You know, as we were talking about the growth of the entrepreneurship at the university level, uh, there's also a, a continuing growth in the idea of studying leadership. And that's another thing as, as the title of my show suggests. Business is all about solving complex problems as fast as you can create them. Become the best problem solver by leading others to greatness too. And the first step is going to DougThorpe.com. Doug Thorpe is known globally for coaching entrepreneurs and business leaders, improving their performance and the work output of everyone surrounding them. You can find health, wealth, and happiness by learning to lead others to health, wealth, and happiness. Go to DougThorpe.com now and order Doug's books or hire him to coach your managers. That's Doug, T-H-O-R-P-E.com. Big passion of mine is leadership development and training new leaders. I know in my day going to business school, we didn't even come close to a class about leadership. We had a couple of really lousy classes about management, but um, they, I don't think the L word ever got mentioned in the curriculum that we had. But now, um, most every major business school that I'm aware of has some form of of leadership training as a block or you know, it can be anywhere from three hours to nine hours in, in most, uh, you know, business-related degree plans. Absolutely. Um, and, and I think, like you, I think I had plenty of management and some HR classes that I think were, were probably useful, but not focused on, on leadership. And, you know, leadership is critical, whether you're, whether you're in my role kind of working with, you know, 
either either younger people or students or entrepreneurs and helping them, but also for those that want to become entrepreneurs, right? Eventually, you're going to lead that team, and it's a critical piece of study. Which I think, as you and I discussed a little bit earlier, I, I think there's um, there's a lot of misunderstanding, um, and and I'll I'll tell you a story. So when I got to um, when we when I got to Nevada State Bank, this is this was one of those moments that stood out about what leaders really are and the good ones do. But when I got there, we had got the private bank started. As I said, I was the first hire. Uh, we eventually brought in an EVP to kind of that I reported to, and I remember about you know the first week that I met with him, he had me in his office, and he said, "Look." He said, my job is to make your job easier. He said, if there's internal obstacles, there's internal challenges, like it, I will go take care of those. And if you need something to get out there and be successful at your job, let me know because that that's what I'm here for. And it was really one of those aha moments, Doug, where, where I, it changed my, my perception of, oh, wait a second. Yeah, that's right. I mean, his job as he's stating, is to make me successful. And I've taken that and tried to apply that because I think that is the role of a good leader is, is you know, oftentimes leaders thinks everyone's working for them and that's not really the case, right? Right, uh, right. No, there's a whole host of study that we could get into and, and discussions about that. And I, I do agree with you. I, I think a leader's primary responsibility in an organization is to clear the roadblocks for the people on the team and help present a, a clear vision for the team to pursue but as they get busy and start doing that, if if there are roadblocks, then it, it's their job to to bust through those. And the interesting thing in the context of entrepreneurship, if in, if the company's small enough, and, and let's say you know in the range of uh, eight to ten to twenty employees. The interesting dynamic that happens more often than not, it's the owner founder that's the roadblock. It, even even in spirit of, of the owners saying, I'm here to make you guys successful, they still may become the primary roadblock. And I've, I've told a story a number of times. I wish I could claim it as my own, but it was a, another one of my guests last year, early last year. She was describing a client situation. The guy was an entrepreneur in New York and had a good-sized company building up and had about 15 to 20 employees. One day, one of the kind of leads came to him and said, uh, hey, we're rocking along here. We're, we're, we're really humming. What if we all just took a company-wide break, went down to the coffee shop down on the corner? You know, you up for that? And he goes, yeah, sure. That sounds awesome. And so... He marches out on the floor and yells at everybody, all right, shut it down, shut it down. We're going to have a coffee break. Come on, you know, follow me. And they go to the coffee shop and they all get their beverages. They're sitting around and this same lead that suggested the idea went up to him and said, well, the real reason we wanted to do this, <laughs> we have some issues and we would like to go over them with you. And he went, oh, okay, well, shoot, what are they? Well, it was all about him. It was a long laundry list of reasons <laughs> that he was deterring the progress. 
Well, apparently this leader had the mental fortitude and the emotional intelligence to just really lock in and engage. And, and instead of going, what the hell, what are you talking about? He opted to say, oh, well, tell me more. Let's, let's get into this. What do you, what do you have? And, you know, they started going through things like you're a micromanager. We, we know what we need to do. We don't need you hovering and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it, it, it went on and on and on. And, Fortunately, this guy took it as his next 100-day plan, and he he told the crew, he said, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. Thank you so much for bringing this up to me, and I will do everything I can to correct these things and fix these things. So it was a, you know, it was a very positive response and outcome. And my point is not all owners have that kind of veracity to mm-hmm. – to you know there i can think of owners that i've known that would say are you kidding me you're fired <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah that's that's impressive that that he would respond that way but i do think you know back to the leadership though i think a great leader has that curiosity and has that willingness to to look at um new data right i mean i'm a big believer in database decisions and yeah the feedback's coming back you know, this isn't working. I mean, it does take a great leader. I think the great leaders, sorry, will look at that and say, well, wait a minute, maybe there's truth to that. And if there is truth to that, what are we going to do to correct that? Um, that's impressive. I, I, I love to hear a story like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's a, it's a hallmark for what good leadership is about. And I always stress with my clients, there is a, a really key and distinct and definite difference between management and leadership. So when you show up and you're managing your business, you, you can still achieve something and you might even take it to a new level on pure management grit, you know, and and by that, I mean, you know, command and control, you know, telling people what they need to do and giving them assignments and giving them deadlines and, and really just pushing it from sheer determination. But leadership is, is much different. And it comes in and looks at the human side of everything and says, essentially in in the at least in my view of modern thinking it says who are you what do you want to do here let's see what the opportunities may be and now granted you you clean up a lot of that and connect some dots during your hiring process you want to hire people that are good fits for what it is you do want your business to be doing so it's not just a a random draw but when you've got those people that have fit your sense of purpose and definition, then you got to figure out how to show them what a win looks like, you know, how to do the next right thing and tell them what that right thing is and then give them the latitude to run with it. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's, there's a, and it's, anyway, there's a book out there called uh, the psychology of hope. It's by, um, Something Snyder is his name. It's been a while since I read it, but, but, and he talks about hope, not really Pollyanna hope, I'll just say, but he breaks down, you know, a person's ability to succeed and he breaks it down to what he calls willpower and way power and willpower being um, that basically a person's willingness or drive to, to succeed and do whatever it takes. But he also talks about 
way power. And that's this idea of you, do you really, do you know the steps, right? Do you know what needs to take place? Do you know how to get from A to where to B to where you want to go? And then he combines those two in, in a measurement to say, you know, that that's your, you know, the sum of those two abilities really will determine, you know, some successful outcome, but, but to leadership, I feel like just as you're talking about is important because I think a, a real leader, a great leader has an effect on both those pieces, both willpower and way power willpower being, I think a, a real, a great leader is inspiring. They motivate and they kind of can help supercharge someone's own willpower or, or help them when they're discouraged. But also from the, from the way power side, as you were saying, they, they can lay out a plan or a map of action, right? A playbook to say, oh, you want to get to here? Well, let me help you achieve that. And here's the steps I can, I can help set out for you. Yeah. I had a chance a number of years ago to do some work in one of the large global brands, and I won't name names, but they were going through a fairly large culture change initiative. And it was interesting to see the intent that had been laid out. And part of what had happened, there had also been a major reorganization of what had been a bunch of vertical silos that got consolidated and teams were being rebuilt and reassigned and redeployed and so it was uh, it was a classic shuffling of the deck chairs so a, a lot of the work i got to do was going into um, some of the upper and and middle level leaders and help them with all this chaos and this transition that was being thrown upon them and one of the most classic recurring questions was, hey, guys, we've got this new team. What does a win look like? You know, do we understand the work we're being asked to do? And can we define what a win might look like? And it, it, was, it took a while to, you know, get the targets set. Because, like I said, these teams were being jumbled and, and shuffled. So team dynamics that had worked well for some time were now being interrupted. And people were being reassigned to business units that they had never had any prior experience with. But they were, I'll call them sister compliments to what they were used to. But now they needed to learn a little more and vice versa. And it, it, it was a very interesting experiment and for me as a coach. And uh, the company had success with it, and they've subsequently done very well. And But they've, they've done that same reorg all over again a second time now. And oh, wow. So in roughly six years, they've gone through two very major reorgs. Same, same chairman and CEO, and that seat has not changed, but uh, it's, uh, it's interesting to watch the leadership. How did the, how did the um, kind of the employees, did they, did they take to it? Did they like it? Or was there some pushback when, they, when you were moving, moving them roles? Well, there, there was an interesting phenomenon that emerged, and we actually had a name for it. We called it the frozen middle. And um, how it manifested was... 
And, and this is where I had already been developing a thesis in my own mind about leadership. And, and, and the thesis says this, in spite or despite 40 years of my own frontline experience and, and a whole wide range of victories and failures hiring people and building teams, I've come to the conclusion that if you do a decent job hiring the people you've identified want to do the right thing. You know, nobody wants to show up and suck at their job. Not if they're, you know, a suitable fit for what you're doing. Nobody wants to just be mediocre. They, they want to do things. So as a leader, this is where I go back to my statement, you got to show them the next right thing. You, you have to lay that out for them and help them see the way forward. And the challenge is this, if you don't give them that direction, they are going to freeze in the middle. They're, they're going to do fundamentally nothing because they're afraid of doing the wrong thing. And because they don't know what the right thing is, they're not going to do the wrong thing. So they do nothing. <laughs> they just, they just tread water. And if you've, if you've shuffled the deck and the, the clarity of the purpose of the team they're on has been lost temporarily, you're going to have this frozen middle. They're, they're going to freeze in time and not want to do much of anything for fear of doing the wrong thing. I could see that. That's interesting. That's interesting. But you must have had a couple of great leaders then that were able to help facilitate that change, you being one of them. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the company was big enough. They they saw the need and, and they engaged a whole team. I, I was um, I had a team of 35 coaches that went in there and helped them. And we we were doing direct one on one work with about 300 leaders um, to to get through this migration. And part of it, it was an interesting exercise. Part of it was the creation of a defined leadership framework. But then as soon as you put the words on the wall, you've got to start doing the heavy work of being sure everybody's aligned with the real meaning of those words. Because words are just words. And you, you can pick some glowing, wonderful sounding words to put up in the gold letters on the wall at the headquarters. But until you lean into it at every management level and say, what do you think these words mean to you and your team? How are you going to affect this change and come online with the spirit of what is being laid out here? And it, that is not an easy fix. You know, it's interesting from, from that, you know, I'm sure there's parallels to draw, but from that world, that's probably a large organization to a, to an early stage company. Right. I mean, a lot of times the early stage, I always say that entrepreneurs just do more with less, right? They have to, I mean, that's yeah, the definition. Right. <laughs> there's that's right. no other choice. Um, again, they have limited time, limited people, limited, you know, capital, limited everything, and they have to perform. But in those early stages, right? The goals and, and uh, you know, the targets are sometimes just as simple as let's finish the, making this product and we got to close some sales. <laughs> right. That's, <laughs> that, right. that's it. That's all we, we're going to spend every day, all day on that. And, but I do think that those, the leaders of those organizations, whether it's the founder, CEO, or even an informal leader of, of the group, right? 
you know, they do have to define, as you said, they do have to define those wins. And, and you notice a lot of startup culture celebrates those wins, you know, pretty openly and they should, right? It's a way to keep, it's back to that motivation, right? It's helping to supercharge that willpower of everyone to say, hey, we're working on something. We believe in this and let's keep going. Let's keep driving. And uh, again, if it's to close that next sale, then let's, that's the focus. And then as it grows, they start expanding into some of those other challenges, as you're mentioning. Right. No, I agree with you totally. And I, I often laugh. And in my own experience, being an entrepreneur and building a business, you know, there's a there's a there's a chapter in the history of that business where if you're the owner and call yourself CEO, that means chief everything officer. And I mean, after working hard all day, my wife and I would, you know, on our way home, we had stop at Costco and buy toilet paper for the damn bathroom at our office. You know, I mean, you, you, it's it's part of the game, you know, it's it's part of. But here's the rub for the the entrepreneur that's going on this journey and they start out doing that. You're, you're absolutely right. There's a there's a season that. You just have to do that. That's all there is. There's nobody else to do that responsibility. But as the company starts to take off and grow, as the owner founder, you've got to be intentional about making some shifts in those responsibilities and delegating and assigning things out so that you're not stuck doing that and driving yourself crazy. You know, you get up to 10, 15, 20 employees, you can't be the person doing all that. There's too many other big things you need to be doing. No, and it's it's interesting that at there, there's always growing pains at every level of business. And you've seen them at the largest levels. I've seen them a lot at the at the smaller levels. Um, but at, at some point, and this one's challenged, not not for every CEO, but but for some of them there's a there's a period there where they have grown and they need to offload those tasks um that you know i've had this discussion with with entrepreneurs and ceos co-founders before where i say look your job as ceo is to hire better people than you are yeah, yeah. and that's that's not that's not a it shouldn't be seen as a threat but if somebody can do, you know, when you're hiring a head of sales, like they should be able to sell better than you. When you're hiring a marketer, they should be a better marketer than you. And again, at that level, as you said, you're kind of passing off those um, that responsibility. And sometimes it's seen as a threat. But the good, the good ones recognize that I need to be surrounded by people that are far better than me. Well, I agree with you, and I'll, I'll take it one step further and say it a slightly different way. If if you're the CEO and, and you're sitting there and you've built your company up, and now let's say your top side revenue is, I don't know, three to five million, but you want to take it to 10, well, if you've got an opportunity to bring in a sales director or an operations chief, don't bring a guy that's doing three to five million. Find the guy that's already doing 10 and hire them to come in and bring you to 10 and or 20 or whatever your your target is and because for each of those giant leaps in success there's going to be new and different experiences and if you really want to get your company there you need to start hiring the people that have already done it and can 
have an interest in helping you come up to that level. Absolutely. The the other advice that I would give any of your entrepreneurs out there that are listening that are thinking, hey, I've got to go from five to 10 or 10 to 20 is go spend time with someone that's already at 10 or 20 and, and ask them what they're doing, you know, how they've set up their business. I mean, most founders, as you know, are pretty openly talk to each other and want to see others succeed. I mean, that's a good, that's a good learning experience. I think for anyone that wants to scale to say, you know, well, how did you, how did you scale your, you know, how did you scale this or what, what do you, what process do you have in place? What software are you using? I mean, questions like that, you can learn a lot. Right. Facilitate that growth. Right. Well, I'll tell you what, Ryan, I think we're up on time here, man, that time has flown. It's been a pleasure visiting with you. And uh, I always like to ask if if people want to get in touch with you and learn more, what's the best way to do that? Just, I, I mean, I would say use my email, Hemingway. that's with one M, so R-H-E-M-I-N-G-W-A-Y at epicvc, E-P-I-C-B-C.com. And Great. I would say if you, if just in the subject line, put in, you know, leadership powered podcast i will uh, i'll get back to you that's great well again one last time thank you for sitting in and sharing with us uh, i think this has been really really good discussion and hopefully helpful for everybody no it's great thank you again for having me it was fun you bet you bet well, folks, as always, uh, the information that Ryan just shared will be in the show notes. You can get his link down there. And um, this is also the point in the show where I remind everybody we have a video edition of this over on YouTube, channel by the same name, Leadership Powered by Common Sense. Hop over there, take a view of, of things that, that we've um, put up. We do have a lot of content coming at you. We are doing three shows a week now, so there's uh, there's a great bit of information out there. And as always, if you've got a thought or an idea of something else we haven't yet covered, please let me know. You can find me all over social media as well. But for now, we're going to sign off, say goodbye, and wish you the best, and hope to see you again real soon. Take care. You've been listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense, hosted by Doug Thorpe. If you would like to know more about the coaching and advisory services he provides, visit DougThorpe.com.